My beloved brethren and sisters and young people and friends, one of the delightful things that the gospel records is that they are, they are virtuous for all age groups. You know, when we were at Sunday school, many of our Sunday school lessons, when we were, say, just five or seven or ten, were made up of, uh, of some stories like this, like the man who came through the roof last night. And we were quite satisfied and found that an interesting lesson. A few simple facts and uh, a lesson or two were drawn from it. The amazing thing of the gospel records is that they are, they are satisfying for life, aren't they? There is so much that is rich in them, even while the story in its basic import seems to be so presentably simple. The more you think, the more that you see the power of them. And so whilst uh, we don't seem to have, perhaps have read... Uh, a very great section and it might have seemed to you that they're very basic and simple things yet underneath them there are some really beautiful things just like last night the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins wasn't that an incredible thought that went into that there's no doubt that uh, you know sometimes when you listen to things a brother is uh, deliberating in the scriptures and he spends time in a passage and and he brings up all the other passages and then fits them all in and you think, oh, yes, that sounds uh, okay, but I wonder if that was intended. Do you often think like that? I used to think like that. But I don't think like that anymore because uh, increasingly one comes to realise that the Master just knew his Bible like, like it was ABC. It's all the only book he had. You know, imagine if we only had one book. If we only had one source of reading, of, of education that's all I had one book he wasn't interested in the rabbinical writings he had one book you imagine a mind like his with a thirst like his spending time in the scriptures imagine how that mind would just, just absolutely reap the essence of those books and that's why in his words beautiful things just come out like a flow just combining many, many passages. There's a bit of Hosea and a bit of the Psalms and a bit of the law, all combining together like one glorious stream. As he himself described it, every scribe fitted to the kingdom bringeth forth out of his treasures things new and old. And he's the most glorious example that ever was of that. Intermingling with the things that were all in the law and the prophets, the things which he'd seen in, in life, experiences among men the natural things of life that he'd seen and learnt lessons from and knew the behaviour of birds, animals, seasons and times. He mingled it all in together, one beautiful mind. So that I've come to accept that, you know, a little expression like the Son of Man, when he says that, hath power on earth to forgive sins, yes indeed he'd know exactly what Psalm 8 was about. And he'd just be drawing Psalm 8 right out of its context because that was the absolute essence of it, wasn't it? Marvelling, as they said, that God hath given to men, the Son of Man, such wonderful powers that he should be Lord on earth in God's place. So, if you see lots of other things as we're going through and would like to stop, you're probably right. There are lots of other beautiful things, but we haven't time to stop on all of them. So he went forth again by the seaside, we read in chapter 2 and verse 13, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. Now if you've got your maps there at the back, just get some idea in your mind of the uh, precise place where Matthew lived. 
it seems that it was most likely Capernaum. And if you have your map there, you'll see that Capernaum is on the western coast and in the northern half of that coast. It's really getting fairly close towards the top of the sea. And Damascus, right up there to the northeast, was a very important centre, a very important centre. And the principal road to Damascus from Jerusalem or from the coast went up along the Sea of Galilee. If you were on the sea, it crossed at Megiddo, came across to the Sea of Galilee, went along that northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, crossed a little higher over the upper Jordan and then went off to Damascus. If you were coming from Jerusalem, then it went through the centre of the land or down along the, the, uh, the uh, valley of Jordan and again came up along the sea, went through Capernaum and then crossed again and went off to Damascus. So from whichever area you're coming from, uh, Capernaum really was in a very central position. And where it says in verse 14 that he, re- that he sat at the receipt of custom, that was therefore placed on this great western road from Damascus or from the Mediterranean. Going from Mediterranean or Jerusalem, then you pass that way, see? You pass that way on your way to Damascus and consequently the Romans place a custom house on that road. He's called in this record, intriguingly, Levi. No doubt that denotes also the tribe from which he had come. And we might notice that as rather unexpected because Levi was the the tribe who was very close to the things of God historically. And uh, the Pharisees, of course, were very opposed to anything that was Roman. They hated those Roman tax gatherers. And they also hated the Romans (laughs) toll gathering. There were tax gatherers apart from the customs and toll um, taxation that was placed upon people. And the Pharisees, in fact, had a law that if any of their members should become involved in employment in those sources, then if they had uh, duties within the synagogue, uh, they would lose them. They would not tolerate their members being in any way associated with the collection of taxes on behalf of the Romans, whether it was in the normal tax gathering or whether it was in these custom houses uh, through past which, of course, people went with their, uh, their wagons and their tra- trolleys and so forth, uh, using the services of the road and the bridges, and therefore the Romans exacted from anything from 2.5% to 12.5% as they passed by. I hear that you've got a toll road just put in behind uh, Durban and Pine Town there, and that people don't use it because uh, they have to pay, is it 60 cents or something? 40 cents, all right. And so they go around the long way sometimes just to avoid the toll gate. Well, you imagine if uh, every time a big truck came along, the customs uh, men called it to one side and they checked how much it on and they saw that it had uh, uh, $10,000 worth of goods on and they said, we want 10%. Boy, then there'd be a a furor, wouldn't there? Well, that's how these uh, customs boys uh, had opportunity to aggrandise their uh, wealth. Uh, Obviously, a lot was left to them. 
And then uh, the local rich men, the large traders, would also do a deal with them so that they would give them opportunities and uh, advancements in various ways if they would uh, bypass uh, their merchandise as it came through. So the poor would end up paying the custom and the rich would work their way. Times haven't changed a lot, have they? Well, what was Levi's other name? In the record in Matthew, in Matthew's own record, he is described as Matthew. It's interesting that Matthew is a Grecianized form of the word Mataniah. Who was called Mataniah before his name was changed to Zedekiah? That last king of Judah, the last one that reigned for, for 11 years, he had his name changed from Mataniah to Zedekiah. Strangely, it was changed uh, by the king of uh, Babylon. I think probably he was aware of the prophecy of Jeremiah in his 23rd chapter where it promised a king whose name was the branch, Yahweh our righteousness, because that's what Zedekiah meant, Yahweh our righteousness. So he feignedly indicated to Zedekiah in a beautiful piece of political flattering that he was the promised one of Jeremiah's prophecy and therefore they should work in with the king of Babylon who gave him such a glorious name. Anyway, that's well and truly off the track. Matthew's name meant Mataniah, and Mataniah means the gift of Yahweh. So you could either have the name of Levi, or you could have the name of, Mathen of uh, Mataniah. Matthew chose that he should be called Matthew, which meant the gift of Yahweh. He'd come to appreciate what God had done in his life. Matthew is mentioned always among the second group of apostles. Did you know that they're always in groups? They're in groups of four. You have um, Peter, Andrew, James and John. That's the first group. In every list where you find the disciples, you'll find they're in the same groups of four. Within the group of four, it may be a different arrangement, but they're always in groups of four. And so Matthew's always found in the second group of four. And when the Lord came to this place, of course, which had very little uh, relevance to him, how could he pay taxation? He was with many people, however. And when he came to this, can you imagine it, this Roman custom house, a building of some construction, the Romans always made their government buildings of significance. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, a word that is normally used for a toll house custom, the word Telonian, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, again, that's where we need to exercise that thoughtful imagination. Have you got some picture of that? It's really an incredible thing, isn't it? Here's a man involved in his business. There's all his desk and papers. And the next minute he leaves the lot and follows a man. Now, it's irrational to say that he didn't do that without some weighing of the situation. 
And it must have been that Levi had sat in that place many times in recent days and heard the sway of the crowd going back and forth. He'd heard many stories. He had seen people come in paying custom or going past that used to be very infirm. He'd seen people that used to be demoniacs. You know, Levi was, was really in a corner in society. He was basically of a good intent. But he got himself involved in this job and he really couldn't extricate himself to be part of the, of the acceptable Jewish society because of the job he had. And when he went now to the synagogue, they looked down their noses, which were always quite long. They looked down at their noses and despised him. So poor Levi was in a situation where few could find to help him. And of course, he needed his occupation, I suppose he thought, like so often we do, when we're in a position which may not be very savoury or satisfactory. And yet, he had been sitting at that desk, and whilst he was collecting this Roman custom, he began to see that there really was a cause that was greater than anything he had known in life before. People could not be acting like they were. People could not be healed like they were unless this Jesus of Nazareth was absolutely a most exceptional person that the claims he made to be the Son of God were in fact true. So that in that unexpected place there was in the mind of that man a pure development of thought that was seeing issues clearer because his mind was, was honest his mind and heart were honest. He didn't have vested interest in causes. He was able to respond to a new influence that was obviously correct. When the weight of evidence was in a certain direction, Levi was able to make that judgment because he was not with vested party interest. But other people didn't see him like that. They couldn't accept him into their society. But the Lord could. And that's the glory of that story. That he should choose a man who in Jewish society was an outcast. It was not only lepers. It was not only men with infirm feet. Or the unclean spirit that had been for so many years in the synagogue. It was also people like Levi. Basically honest of heart but through circumstances have got themselves offside with their society. And so he stopped all that interior of people and he turned to Levi and he said to Levi, follow me. And Levi was ready to go. All the facts had distilled in his mind and he knew that's what he had to do. Lo and behold, who turns up outside the custom house, but none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And he turns to him and said, follow him. He was in a mind ready to go. So we've always got to be on the lookout for people who are basically honest of intent and are find, wishing to find a way out of the extrication of circumstances into which their lives have, chosen, have led them. And in this time, occasion, he actually became one of those great foundations. Can you believe that? one of those great foundations upon which the kingdom of God will be based. A prince upon his throne 
over one of the tribes of Israel in the future. Isn't that a glorious story? Well, verse 15, it says that in his joy he made a feast to the Lord. You see, he could respond as the Pharisees never could. His heart was really touched that a man had found grace sufficient to answer his needs. No wonder he used that name Mataniah from then on, the gift of Yahweh, because he was touched by the gracious hand of his God. The Son of God had stopped at his door and had lifted him out of his circumstances and given him a new hope. And so, no doubt feeling therefore for all of his confrères, not all of whom would have been the rogues, which was the general description of those characters, and knowing too probably that in amongst some of those there were people like, well, like Zacchaeus, who at a later time in Luke chapter 19 would also want to find his way to the Lord, and the Lord again would pick him out of the sycamore tree. He would find him up there and knew what his heart was like when all the rest would cast him off. You see, there's a very delightful theme about that. It's a theme of redemption. Of making an opportunity. Sometimes we have a young man that comes into our midst. And you look at him and think, strike, what a scarecrow. All the effects of the world are upon him. And you might be inclined to say, he's got no hope in the world. Beware, my dear brothers and sisters. There are some remarkable things that are happening even in these times. And I'm not saying by that, lower your ecclesial standards. I'm not saying, well, let him wear his feet into the meeting without any shoes and socks on. I hate that type of thing. I tell you, I despise that type of thing. I see when, when I see somebody come breezing into the meeting and half their chest showing, it just absolutely turns me upside down. What do we think our ecclesial meetings are? I'm not condoning that one whit. But I am saying that when a person comes through force of circumstances, in a way that is not uh, as we, as Christadelphians, and brought up in the truth, understand is the right way that we should endeavour to make a constructive move towards that person. And I'd like to make this comment that I have been greatly cheered in coming to these Bible schools by the spirit and attitude of those who have shown that. I greatly appreciate that. And I really ask of you in all the pressures that are on in our last few years that you never lose that spirit. Never lose that spirit to redeem a person. To find him and draw him out of his circumstances because without a shadow of a doubt that is the spirit of the Son of God. It's in keeping that kind of balance, my dear brothers and sisters. Rigidity for that which is right. Courage to uphold it. Strength of principle. It's in that maintaining of that and yet that spirit to, to lift up and redeem that is exactly the balance of our Heavenly Father. And there can hardly be many passages in the Bible like the one that is before us that so illustrate that beautiful balance. Never lose either of those signs. It came to pass in verse 15 that as Jesus sat at meat in his house. Now in Matthew's record he doesn't tell you it's his house, but Mark here can afford to do that. Do you know what Matthew must have done? No doubt he did have some possessions. He had a good job. Not all of them had good jobs. Some had to go, go and catch fish. It was a lot easier to catch people 
take some money from them. No doubt some of that money had been gotten by less than proper means. Or, you know, if the, disc, if the commission could be 2% or 12.5%, it gives you a fair licence, doesn't it? No doubt he had quite a comfortable circumstance. Leastways, with so many people already around the Lord, because it does say in verse 13 that there were many with him, and it repeats that in verse 15, and they followed him, they were many. Matthew, however, was able at a relatively short notice to open up his house to a very large feast and invited many people. And as I said, without a doubt, many of them were his confreys, people that he had worked with and knew that, well, I believe there's some hope for them. All right, they may have been involved in this and that, but if they could only hear this man speak, if they could only put that story together, possibly too, they might turn around and want to have the truth. So we can see that picture. A varied company, isn't it? Matthew and many other people with him. All knowing each other, no doubt. There were many of them. He put on a feast because he was so happy. He was so thankful. Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. You know, businessmen know businessmen, don't they? And among a lot of businessmen altogether, there's a lot of sinners, without a shadow of doubt, because that's just what business is often like, particularly in this age. Always was like that. There's a need for rectitude in our business ways. So you can imagine in that company of people, there were all kinds of people that before had some kind of affinity with Matthew, and perhaps because Matthew had made their burden a little light, for, in return, some other benefits. And the strict Jews knew that. When they therefore looked in and saw that, they thought, goodness me, there's, uh, there's old so-and-so. There's somebody else there. Look, the whole lot of them. They're all in there. All in there with Matthew. And who's sitting in the middle of them? The Son of God. And really, you know, you need to take time to think about that. Because that's what it was like. Not much different to today. He was in the midst of a group of people you would not expect him to be. What would be your reaction? Perhaps make it more related to our own circumstances. If you were to come by somebody's house and see a brother of good standing, of high standing, not changing his own position one way, but nevertheless in the midst of a group of people like that, it would make you stop and think too, wouldn't it? There's a bit of Pharisee in every one of us. The important thing is, what is he in there doing? And in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, no question what he was doing. He was teaching them. Many publican sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, his disciples were in there too. They were learning a lesson. A lesson in catching men. And they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that... It, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? <clears throat> when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, are They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Oh, that's a searching comment. He was in there making them whole, or endeavouring to. 
He was working with them. He obviously was teaching. He was using that platform that was afforded to him in that circumstance to meet a group of people who never were really seen much in the crowds of all types of people that followed him from city to city and were found in the synagogues and so on. Because they never could fit in there. But here was their opportunity. And Matthew in his wisdom and the graciousness and thankfulness of his heart had opened that house for this occasion. And along came those who were whole. And they looked in there and they picked him for that. Be careful that there's not that kind of spirit in us. Where a person is about a good work and a constructive work and has opportunity to, as Jesus here, to teach, then that work should be taken. What else can that picture mean? No degree of messing around with the details can change that basic structure that that's what he was there to do. It was a good work and constructive. We must keep that balance. So he speaks of them as whole. Were they whole? You know, that's a very ironical description, really. What's he really saying? Their disease is almost incurable. Why? Because they didn't know they had one. You see, you can cure a leper because he will come out to you and say, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He will bend down. He will cry unto you. But what do you do with a man who says, I've got no need? That's a much more difficult disease, isn't it, to cure? Because ye say ye see, therefore your sin remaineth. He'd healed a blind man. They were more blind than the blind man. And Jesus said to them, therefore, in John chapter 9 and verse 40 and 41, Because ye say ye see, therefore your sin remaineth. Oh, we must always know our need. When we come before our Heavenly Father, my dear brothers and sisters, we must know our need. Tell me this. In your personal prayers, in your ecclesial prayers, do you hear people say as of today, as I think we used to, a request that God should forgive our sins? Is that in all of your prayers? And when you say it, is it a kind of formula, or do you really feel it? That's something everybody's got to ask themselves. But it's my observation that's not said nearly as often as it used to be said. You can make your own observations about that, but I'm sure that's right from the area from which I come from. And we've made that observation of recent times, which must mean that in a sense we're losing our sense of need, because we are all in desperate need. We must be very careful lest we become those that are whole and have no need of the physician. It's an interesting theme and I'd love to develop that. Have you got Brother Sargent's book? If you have, read his section on this because I haven't got time, even I, haven't got time to deal with all of the beautiful comments that he has in his book as he shows this theme coming through from Hosea. You know that Hosea is the one that cries out time and time again that Ephraim was sick and he was going to bring healing to Ephraim. That expression, the physician, therefore finds its basis in Hosea because that's the passage above all others in the Old Testament where that theme is developed. Make a little note, chase it through later. It's an Hosea theme. Yes, all right, it's mentioned in Isaiah 33 verse 24 that God will take away their sins and thus take away their diseases. 
Psalm 103 has the theme too. And Yahweh is called Yahweh as Sid Canute, Yahweh uh, Rafika, Yahweh my healer uh, by Moses. But there's no book that discusses the theme of the physician like it is in Hosea. In fact, in the Matthew record, in Matthew 9, at this particular point, Jesus here quotes from Hosea. So that's significant, isn't it? Isn't it a beautiful mind that's able to think like that? There he is in this context, and he sees them all like Hosea saw the northern ten tribes. You think of the irony of that. Hosea was among the northern ten tribes. What were the Pharisees said about the northern ten tribes? Hopeless bunch. Absolute apostates. Hosea was sent to try and heal them. Right? Oh, that I might heal thee, O Ephraim. Now Jesus is using this term, they that are whole have no need of the physician. Is he using it in plain terms or is he using it ironically? He's using it ironically. So what he's really saying is that in fact the Pharisee is in a worse situation than the northern ten tribes were, be, uh, were before. They've got really a greater need of the physician, haven't they? Than even these publicans and sinners. It's an amazing way, the way in which he uses that. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. They come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Now I want you to notice that there's a development here. The first question in their minds is in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Where sitting there in that house in Capernaum, they had thoughts in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? That's point number one. The second quibble is in chapter six, verse 16 of chapter 2. The Pharisees saw him eating with publicans and sinners. Now in verse 18, we have the third question of disgruntlement. And that goes on until eventually it ends in murder itself. Or with the intent to murder in chapter 3 and verse 6. So the section has a development in which through jealousy... Because that's what it was in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Through jealousy, they are led to a state of mind which is totally unacceptable in God's sight. Beware of jealousy. And verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees come to him. Why are they together? Well, because of the stringencies of John the Baptist, because of that very... Uh, the very uh, ascetic life that he lived, there would be among many of the disciples of John something of the Pharisaical outlook, which rejoiced in things that it should not do. So we can see how there was some degree of affinity on the outsides of each of those groups. Why did they fast? Well, of course, the disciples of John probably fasted because now John was in prison and they were fasting in the hope that God would give him liberty from his dungeon. As far as the Pharisees were, con were concerned, they had two fasts. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, it tells us that, doesn't it? I fast two times every week. And they fasted on those days in which they believed Moses went up into the mount that second time and the day on which he returned. 
And so they commemorated both, both of those days and looked for the time when Messiah would come uh, to them. What an irony. Here they were fasting and Messiah was in their midst. They continued fasting and ignored him. So they put this question. We do these good things, restraining our natural desires. Why don't your disciples do that? My dear brethren and sisters, what penny-pinching sort of attitude was that? The Lord's disciples were absolutely entirely involved in the work. Their whole lives were given to him. That is their quibble, therefore, in verse 18. Here's the answer. Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. That's the first time that the Lord uses this analogy of the bride and the bridegroom. Where does that come from in the record of Scripture? What book in the Bible? Song of Solomon? And what other book in the Bible? Hosea. That's right. So we've got Isaiah too. That's what you said. <laughs> So we've got uh, several passages in the Bible from which that arises. But the, the one that particularly interests us now in the light of the physician in verse 17, and this event clearly went on from the other, is the one in Hosea. Because in Hosea it says how that God had a bride and then she had gone off and she committed adultery. And later on he brings that bride back in chapter 2 and he says, I have betrothed thee unto me again. How delightful. You know, Hosea, when he does that, quotes from the Song of Solomon. So you're right to me. The Song of Solomon is liberally quoted by, by Hosea in his uh, 14th chapter, where all the symbols of the book of, uh, of, uh, of the Song of Solomon are quoted into that 14th chapter. So we have Hosea taking that from the Song of Solomon, which is, of course, the book about the bride and the bridegroom. In the end, about the Lord Jesus Christ and his uniting with his people, his beautiful virgin bride. So, Hosea borrows from the Song of Solomon, and the Lord is perfectly aware of all that, and comes and plucks this out of Hosea, even as Hosea was in his thought in verse 17. Isn't the Bible interesting? You know, this is not really the first time, though, that the language has been used by someone else in New Testament times. Who else used that figure of the bride and the bridegroom? It was John the Baptist, wasn't it? We read of that the other day, I think. It's in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 28. This is John speaking. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. John was very happy to see himself but as the best man, so to speak, of the bridegroom. He was not competing with the Lord, and when therefore the Lord came, he was happy to step back and allow him to increase, and he himself to decrease, even in the darkness of Herod's dungeon. So when Jesus therefore took up that uh, thought, not only was he combining the thoughts of Hosea and Song of Solomon, but he was really, in a very sensitive way, he was taking up the very words 
which John had told his own disciples. Isn't that lovely? What a, what a mind. What a mind is involved in that. Don't you remember what your own master John had said? It is not now a time for sadness and grief. The bridegroom is among his guests. There will come a time when he's not, and then indeed will they grieve. But the days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. So he saw the whole picture so perfectly. Then they would desire to see, as we read in Luke chapter 17 and verse 22, one of the days of the Son of Man. They would desire to see one of those days in their thirsting, in their morning. And you know, that's why we are worried, isn't it? That's what plays upon us. That's why the joys that we have from time to time get submerged then in our worries and in our concerns. Where's this country going from? Where's our history? What will be the future of our children? What's happening to ecclesial life? How are the ecclesias going to get through their present problems? All of those problems reduce from what would otherwise be a time of joy. So we long and desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And more directed towards the Pharisees, I think in verses 21 and 22, he gives this also as his reply. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filleth it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. It's like patching trousers. That's an old uh, pastime, I know. I don't know if we ever see patched trousers these days, do we? Remember my old grandfather? He used to come round to our house, and I never saw him, except on Sundays, in anything that wasn't patched. It was the knees, it was the backside, it was the pockets that were fixed up, it was the, the jumper that was all uh, fixed up here as well. You know, that's how life was. You know, the day I heard a wife complaining because her husband was wearing a jumper that was perfectly all right. <laughs> but you see that's how we've become you can't have anything that's not perfect but in the old days they were always patching up garments but you know if a garment is so worn that it's become thin whatever is the point of putting a good uh, repair on a bad piece of material what happens then when the pressure comes why there's a wren made and it's greater than the problem in the beginning that's the point that Jesus is making in verse 21. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment. Up until recent times, people always used their garments till they couldn't. But where was there in the Old Testament references upon which he was uh, drawing? Can you think of one? Remember our readings? What about that 64th chapter? Surely the Lord is quoting from here. And doesn't that confirm the understanding that we had in our readings there a couple of nights ago? Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. But we all, as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And we discussed, as we were looking at this the other night, that it seemed fairly clear that that is a play upon the, 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 the pharisaical element, the, the self-righteous element of the time of the Lord, who would think that they indeed were whole, 
that they did have a righteousness of their own. And the prophet is saying, no indeed, it's no more worth than a filthy rag. Unquestionably, that's what the Lord was drawing upon. It was a new, a new garment that was needed, not patching up the old. The old was spent. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, in an earlier place, had spoken of that garment in other terms. So in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 9, Behold the Lord what God will help me, who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. They also all shall wax old as a garment. If that's not the words of the Lord, then what is? The moth shall eat them up. Who's he speaking about? Adversaries of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see verse, uh, verse 5 and 6? That's the Lord. Verse 8 he says, He is near that justifieth me. That is God is close to the Lord who will justify him. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Where was his confidence? In himself? No, but in God. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Though he be crucified, yet the spirit of holiness would take him forth from that grave and vindicate him because it was not possible that the grave should hold him. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. And that's what happened. Their constitution was eaten up as a moth would eat a garment in AD 70 when the Romans came down and wrapped up their constitution and swept it away. Isaiah 51 and verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like garment, like a garment and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. Verse 8, the moth shall eat, eat them up like a garment, and their worms shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Here was a people who were saying that they stood in their own righteousness. The garment was their own righteousness. And they were confident in that. Jesus says it's filthy rags, as Isaiah the prophet had said. What's needed is not the patching up of something old that's all rotten, but a new garment. My righteousness, verse 5, is near. My salvation has gone forth. That's a garment. It's a covering. God was going to provide that covering. Not something achieved by human uh, well, well, meritorious works, but something that God would give. The justification by faith. God was offering it. He says it's near. But rather than that, the Jews came along and they started to patch up those old garments as if they might be able to prevent their, their insufficiency being seen of God. So they went about making this garment of their own righteousness, which eventually the Romans got hold of and threw it away. And that's how Paul applies those passages, isn't it, in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. He says, that which is old is ready to decay away. And when that epistle was written, Hebrews, it was just before AD 70. And soon the Roman legions would come through, and they'd get hold of that garment, and they'd toss it in the waste bin. A new garment had been provided. So that's what Jesus is drawing upon. Isaiah 51 and 64 and 50. When he speaks here in verse 21. That no man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment. The very words of Isaiah. But my dear brothers and sisters, isn't that a glorious mind? You and I are probably scouting through those pages and trying to put it all together. He's just standing in the street. He's picked 
as he did not in the street, he's in the house. He's uh, suddenly picked on by the Pharisees and he's able to put an argument together like that. See what a mind that was? That's not like you and I, is it? That's the Son of God. There's a capacity there that's greater than ours. So they had something to think about, didn't they? A little bit of Bible homework to do as they went home. The next one is in verse 22. No man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. New wine, he says, must be put into new bottles. Now, new wine has got a bite about it. It's got more acid in it. As wine ferments and matures, it becomes milder. But new wine has got a bite about it. There's more acid in it. The bottles in those days, of course, were not made of glass. They were made of leather. And therefore, if you'd had a vessel, a bottle, a leather bottle, and it had wine in it, then you had to go careful if it was an old bottle. It would be all right with the original wine because most of the acid had been uh, chemically removed in the processing, maturing process. But if then that having been used, you thought, well, I don't want to discard it. I've got all this new wine. I've got a bit left over. And you said to yourself, oh, well, I'll use one of the old bottles. Lo and behold, in a short time, you'd find that the acid had eaten through that leather and you had a mess upon the floor. So he says, and the bottles will be, the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred. New wine, he said, must be put into new bottles. Do you know, in the everyday terms of that language, a very ominous truth was being taught the Pharisees. What was that saying? They were the bottles. There was another bottle needed. Another type of bottle was needed. He was looking, looking at them and saying, despite all my desire, there's going to come a time when, because you put it from you, the door of faith is going to be open to the Gentiles. Just like the Apostle Paul would put it in Acts chapter 13, when in that synagogue in Antioch, <coughs> They refused his message. They hardened their hearts. And he eventually turned to them and said, You're old bottles. You will not receive that. Because he put it from you, even though I've tried to fill you with that new wine. You cannot contain it. You will go back inevitably to the old ways. You will not respond to the ways that God has brought to the Son of God. And I'm afraid we'll have to find new bottles. So we turn to the Gentiles. That's what he was saying in what seems at first to be such a pleasant little scene. A domestic scene had an ominous warning to them. So what a wonderful, what a brilliant answer that was. Wouldn't you like to spend a bit of time now and look through Hosea? Don't just go out of this study and say, well, I'm looking forward to lunch. You go scouting through Isaiah, through Hosea. You find those passages. Read them carefully. If you have problems with them, speak to some of the older brethren. I'd be happy to be involved in that too. But let's make that knowledge our own knowledge. So that when we come past through these, through these parts again, or parents that have got children, and we're sitting here in the readings. We read this record twice a year. It's also in Matthew and part of it in Luke. When we read that record again and somebody says, what are the old bottles? What's the garment? We don't give them a sort of a half answer that hides the fact that we're not quite sure what it's about, we can expand that and make it interesting so that our children love the scriptures 
and they see what a powerful thing we are associated with. It came to pass that he went through the cornfields, verse 23, on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. You know, most times they missed out on their meals. It was rather sad. Chapter 3 and verse 20, the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. That was a very common occurrence. The Lord said, I have meat to eat, which ye know not of, in John chapter 4. He was about his father's way. He was consumed in that work. And the passing of, of meal upon meal never really worried him. He was so consumed in his father's business. And his disciples, therefore, really had to keep up with that. And so from time to time, there'd be no doubt a very dear and friendly sister would be trotting out a few sandwiches and say, look, take these with you. And another one would come with this and another one would come with that. Trying to provide those little uh, requirements of thoughtfulness as uh, the women always did. Those women who came from Galilee, I'm sure, try to keep up in some way with that. But how would you keep up with a man who was just going and going ahead, who was just a driving force of the, of the Lord's work? So, as they were passing through the cornfields, it was not a day of fences. You know, in Australia we have fences, barbed wire along the top. We don't want you to get in, we don't want the cattle to get out. It's a funny old society we live in, isn't it? Very unfriendly show. You know, what I've got's mine and look out. It wasn't like that in Israel. There was just a little path in between. And so they went through the paths. And this was this man's and this was another man's. Not quite the degree of uh, isolation that we have in our society. So as they went through the cornfields, they began to pluck the ears of the corn. You see, they were in fact quite hungry. They, I mean, you wouldn't get a meal out of that sort of thing, would you? Just rubbing a little bit of grain together hardly seems like a three-course meal. Hardly anything that's very satisfying. But at least it's something in an all-consuming service unto God. In fact, the law had allowed that. Deuteronomy says that. In the 23rd chapter of Deuteronomy. Verse 24 and 25. The Lord had a lot of little things like this, which if we could sort of put them all into everyday life, kept a savour of grace, of kindness, consistent with neighbourly principles. Deuteronomy chapter 24 23 and verse 24 When thou comest into thy neighbour's vineyard then thou mayest eat grapes thy fill at thine own pleasure but thou shalt not put any in thy vessel that is you can't take a basket in there and start to hop into his harvest but nevertheless if you want uh, to uh, enjoy a few grapes as you're going past then, then that's okay you know down in the Adelaide market where they bring all their uh, fruit and vegetables in I remember working down there once for a brother and we used to have to get in there very early in the morning, three o'clock, two o'clock some mornings, when it was market mornings. There was a very similar custom that apparently just grown up. In fact, outside the, the market it used to have an inscription. Very, very interesting. It used to have up the top, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. They wouldn't write that today, would they? You know, it costs money to get it up there anyway. The bottom line's all important. But when they constructed that market, 
somebody of a God-fearing mind had put what was a very appropriate quote over the top of the arch of the market. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Anyway, the atmosphere inside there was some, sometimes like that. And I remember that, you know, you could take a person's banana. Or if you felt like a, a few grapes, you could take his grapes. And no one would just say anything about it. And they in turn would use yours. If you felt a little bit hungry early in the morning, you could nibble away at a bit of someone's fruit and no one ever complained about it. Well, that was something like this environment. There was a sense of neighbourliness there. So verse 25, When thou comest into the standing corn of thy neighbour, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbour's standing corn. You don't have to get in there and make out it's your harvest, but if there's just a need to uh, refresh yourself along the way, then that's in keeping. But you see, it was the Sabbath day. And you know the other day you laughed when I said that they used to doubt about whether you could eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. Is that much different? A chook, was it? <laughs> was that what you laughed about? <laughs> I see. Well, there's much, much different with the smallness, is there, of quibbling about that and quibbling about a man who, going along, plucks a few ears of the, of the wheat and begins to rub those in his hand. Have you ever done that? You don't get a very tasty meal out of it. It's hard going. Very hard going. It makes, it makes a little pulse. You can chew away at that for hours. I've done it when we were boys at Uncle's farm and then read this later. But that's what they did. And why quibble about that? That's work. Isn't that pathetic? Absolutely pathetic. And it wasn't that he was doing it, it was just his disciples who were doing it. And so the Pharisees, verse 24, said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? My word, weren't they absolutely pathetic that they should find a cause of pointing the finger on the Sabbath day on an issue like that. Turn back to the prophet Isaiah. You know, very close to those passages about the garment, self-righteousness, the, the sense of no need of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 58. This was what the Sabbath was, was about. Verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure, 58 verse 13, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of Yahweh, honourable, and shalt honour him not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Were the disciples speaking their own words? Doing their own pleasure? Sitting down for a lovely repast? For the midday meal on the Sabbath? That's what the rest of Israel were doing. These men were out in the work of God. You know that's what Jews do. Don't imagine that the Sabbath's an unpleasant thing. It's a very pleasant thing. We happen to see, have opportunity of seeing the Sabbath in operation when we were in Israel very recently. It was very pleasant. It was a lovely family gathering. I think I relate it somewhere else. There was grandfather, there was all of his children that had come from various places and they were meeting together and the table was full of lovely things. All the little grandchildren were nicely dressed and keen and attentive 
to what Grandpa was saying as he, re as he presided over that table. But it was very pleasant. And one thing's for certain, none of those went home hungry. They weren't reliant upon plucking a few ears of corn. That was the Jewish way. And no doubt it was the same the next day at the midday meal. Sabbath is a kind of family celebration together in which they draw together in the things of God. That's the professed intent, but really it's a very pleasant family day. Not much like what the disciples had. Tired legs, dusty feet, hungry tummies, still involved in the work of God with this all-consuming love which their master had to fulfil his father's work. And look what it says in verse 9. Then shalt thou call, and Yahweh shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here am I. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger of accusation and speaking vanity, if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as the noonday. If they wanted to fulfil the Sabbath, as the Lord and his disciples were going through those cornfields, then they should have got ahead of him and said, Come into my house. Here it is, the door is open. My wife and my family have been busy on the Sabbath to provide for you that are hungry sustenance that you might continue in the work of God. Delighting yourselves in God's work as you were doing. Instead of that, these miserable wretches were standing off some feet off and watching carefully. Yes, he did pluck some corn from there. And then they went around and whispered among themselves about that so small a thing that had nothing whatsoever to do with the spirit or even the letter of the law. A pathetic bunch they were. And so he gave them a lesson or two. We've got to scout through that very quickly, but we've got sufficient time to get the bones of it. He relates them to David. David, on the occasion that we read in our readings a night or two ago, when he was having to escape from the cruel sword of Saul, who sought to destroy him. He had a band of men with him, not many. He came to Abiathar the priest on the day of the Sabbath. We are told in the law that on the Sabbath day the showbread was to be changed. The showbread then would be eaten by the priests and his sons. The law makes that quite clear. David came on that day. He knew that Abiathar's need was none like his own. From that time he was going to have to go down the south. He needed to preserve himself and his people. He did not go to the priest at that time because he thought the priest might perhaps be more hungry than himself or that there was no need. There was a need. His soldiers were famished. The few men, who in fact were not soldiers at that stage, they were famished as he was. They could hardly go on in their work, which all said and done was a work of God, was it not? Or had not God called him and said that I command you to be captain over my people Israel? David was not doing that just because of some sort of self-sufficiency, but because there was a need. And so he had no questions in his beautiful spiritual mind of going up to Abiathar and requesting that he might have even of the showbread. The Sabbath, he knew, was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And Abiathar was persuaded by the reasoning of David. 
and Abiathar and his son Ahimelech cooperated with that. And they gave to David on that occasion the requirement that he had need of. Look at the comparison, says Jesus. He says to the Pharisees at this time, have you ever been upset by reading that? Well, uh, no. Why not? Well, I suppose that David was such a revered figure among them. They'd never thought to question that. It's written in the record. High priest cooperated with it. David, he was a glorious man. Why, he was the prototype of Messiah. They'd never thought to question whether David should have done that. But look at the comparison. These people are not in the holy place. They've not gone to the priests in the temple and said, give us the showbread. They were out in the fields. They'd just taken a few ears of corn. Nor had the Lord taken it. In David's David, it was David who took the bread and gave it to his fellows. He led in the whole business. It was he who came to Nob. It was he who spoke to the priest. It was he who took the bread. The whole thing rested upon him. He distributed it to the others. In this case, the Lord himself has not even taken of the ears of the corn. It was just his disciples. Well, I ask you, what, an, what a pathetic pointing of the finger was that. And the Lord showed it for all it was. He said, look, you go back and think what it was in the days of David. Did God condemn him for that? Do you know one of the very specific things it mentions about the priests is that they shall eat the showbread. They shall prepare the incense. And they were there for several special things, blessing the people, eating the showbread, and preparing the incense. They were specially matters of the priest. But David on that occasion, as he would later when the ark was brought in, he would act the, the course of the priest because he could see what the true priest's role was. He knew that eventually God would bring priest and king together in a new Melchizedek order. So Jesus gave them a lot to think about. Go and learn what that meant. And so he said on a broader basis, he said unto them, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. When God instituted a Sabbath in the beginning, was it made for man or was it against man? You know, it was a very real blessing. You know, there are some countries where they don't have a day of rest. I'm not saying that Sunday is Sabbath, but in a sense, it's come from the institution of the Sabbath, in which, in Gentile times, they've recognised that it's not good that a man should work around the clock for seven days. You know, there are some countries where they do. Do you know our brethren and sisters in the Philippines work 84 hours a week? 12 hours a day from 7 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock at night for 7 days a week. Can you think what that would do to the mind? No opportunity to get out of that bind. No opportunity to see other things than servitude to your master. It's not the way that men should live, is it? The Sabbath truly was made for men and not man for the Sabbath. God instituted that after man was created. And it was for his betterment. Therefore, he says, in verse 28, the Son of Man, taking up the old term of chapter 2, verse 10, the Son of Man that is seen there in Psalm 8 is taking over all that God has done. And when did he make all things? When did he institute the Sabbath? Or when did he speak of it in the beginning? It was, of course, after creation. After all things were made. See? 
And Psalm 8 takes up this, the, the story of creation and says that all things were made have been given into the hands of the Son of Man. So Jesus therefore says, the Son of Man that comes to occupy all that his Father has created is truly therefore Lord also of the Sabbath, which was given for man that was created on the sixth day and the Sabbath given on the seventh for his rest. Is therefore not he whom God gives all things also Lord of the Sabbath? I mean, if there was anyone who ever lived who had priority over the Sabbath, it was the Son of Man. If David thought that he could do that which was right on the Sabbath day despite the ordinance of the law, how much more the Son of Man? David's greatest son. Oh, it was a glorious argument. Does the full weight and power of that thrill you, my dear brothers? That's a magnificent mind, isn't it? Never imagine that we can think like he. This is just in the cornfield now. And his mind just goes up to such lofty zeniths as he's able to pick up the whole story and relay it in just the most incredible argument. And to show the depth of their poverty of thinking, look at the story that then follows. He entered again into the synagogue. Back in the synagogue. We note that now. We just used to read it. But it's highly significant. He's been away from the synagogue since he found an unclean spirit in there. Now he's gone back. And he finds that the same unclean spirit is still there. There was a man there which had a withered hand. Have you ever seen a man with a withered hand? Do you know someone that's got a withered hand? Not so often we do today because with our osteopathic surgery, what's the word I want? Orthopedic, orthopedic surgery, our bone surgery and our plastic surgery and so forth, we're able to do all sorts of things even with limbs. So you don't see them today so much, but you do from time to time. I, I know a young lad in our meeting. He was born in difficult uh, circumstances and he's got a poor old hand like that and he can't do anything with it. And you'd love to be able to do something with that. You see him trying to write and it's difficult. And the writing's almost illegible. And there's lots of things he can't do. But this man had his whole life wrecked because his hand can't work. You see, the hand is made to open, isn't it? You ever see what a hand is? If you do that with a hand, it's not for what it was designed. The hand's got four fingers, it's got a, it's got a thumb. And the thumb answers to the fingers. If you didn't have your thumb, you couldn't do what your hand's designed to do. Because the, the thumb answers to them all, doesn't it? They don't answer to each other, they answer to the thumb. And by the thumb and the fingers working together, so the hand can do its work. But it can only do its work if it opens. True? If it can't open, if it's all withered up, it can't be effective. That man's life is taken from him. The hands do things, the legs move, but the hands do things. So he is foiled in life. It's a tragic case. All the things we do with our hands and our fingers and our arms, this man couldn't do. Life was foiled. And they watched him. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. What a pathetic bunch of people. That's point number four in their degradation. Just note, point number five, I should say, in this process to murder, that they could set up a man 
with such an infirmity and just use him for their political ends. They had, were not touched by his circumstances. He'd been there many times. But they put him in a special place so that they would watch to see if the mercy of the Lord would be touched to heal him. Oh, what a wickedness is involved in that. He saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. He saw the trap, saw it perfectly. And he was going to make a full demonstration of this. So there were they, sneaking around by the portals of the temple, just to see what would happen. And he, as it were, draws them out of their lair. And he stands back himself, and he puts the man right in the centre of everybody. Stand forth, he says to the man, and giving time for everyone else to come out from behind the pillars and the furniture of the synagogue. So that all now are exposed, not only that man, but also those that had set him up. And he asked them a question. Oh, how they must have felt revealed and exposed by such an incisive mind. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? What were they doing? What was in their hearts? So he went a step further. To save life? Or like you over there who are seeking now, even now, to kill me. That not only spoke of generalities, but it went right to the very core of their own minds. And they were silenced. They held their peace. They couldn't say boo. They were absolutely as caught and turned into stone as those pillars among which they were hiding. And when he had looked round about on them, and you notice that, with anger. Don't tell me the Lord didn't have feelings. He did have feelings. You don't drive men out of the court of the temple unless you've got feelings. This is the one that will roar from Zion with anger and wrath of God against the wicked world. When he had looked round about on them with anger, notice the cause of his anger here, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he did. He tried. He pushed it. And it worked. And he was able to open his hand. And his fingers were supple. And the muscles of his forehand responded to them. And his fingers met with the, the thumb. And he had a useful hand. His life had been restored to him, hadn't it? He stretched forth his hand. And it was restored whole as the other. And he looked at the two of them. He was a restored man in all his joy. Now if you knew that man, couldn't you fraternise with him and share his joy at that time? Wouldn't you think, oh, I have been so wrong. I put that man forth that I might trick this Jesus of Nazareth and draw him into a, a matter. But now look what he's done. Oh, I've known that man all my life. This really is a glorious occasion. Let us have a celebration. Sabbath or not. Is that what you think? Surely you would think that. But they went away to a feast of death and murder. The Pharisees went forth. Who before were talking about, about fasting and, and ascetic practices. 
Now they are mixed together with Herodians. Who were called Herodians because they, they had an affinity with Herod, the Gentile, the Edomite. The Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians like they later would. In Mark chapter 12. Against him, how they might put him to death. There is the seventh step to murder. And they never change, you know, from then right through until Matthew chapter 12 and even beyond. Indeed, they were vessels, weren't they, that were old and unable to take the new wine with its grace, with its sense of redemption, which the Lord had brought. My righteousness is near, but they would not respond to that. And so eventually what would come to them would be that which they had indeed prescribed for others.